The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Our approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Solik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, we are talking this today about the warning from the NHS leaders who say time is running out to finalise the track and trace strategy that would avoid a potential second surge in coronavirus cases. The NHS confederations warned of severe consequences to staff and patients if the right system isn't established quickly. It says lockdown measures should not be eased until a clear plan is in place. That follows, of course, the Prime Minister's pledge to introduce a world-beating, his words, contact tracing system in England from June. Security Minister James Brokenshire insists the system will be in place by then, despite technical problems with the new NHS app. It does not mean that we cannot have a good and effective track and trace capability in place from the beginning of June, able to contact 10,000 people. And that, that, I think, is a huge uh, investment. Well, let's now bring in Rachel Maskell, who is the Labour MP and Shadow Minister for the Voluntary Sector and Communities. Rachel, welcome to the programme. Thank you for being with us. Let me just pick up on that, perhaps, to start with. Do you get a sense that that the track and trace system is crucial to what comes next in terms of the virus? Well, it's been crucial from the, the day one. And, of course, we started off in that path. In my own constituency, we had the very first case in the UK of coronavirus and we had track trace and isolate was the strategy that was deployed at that time it was the system that was being advocated by public health england driving the health protection element of coronavirus and then of course until mid-march was the policy Um, indeed i was tracked and traced down when i had uh, a meeting with the minister um, nadine doris who um, unfortunately was infected with coronavirus So the system worked and then we know the discussion moved on to this debate about herd immunity and of course that policy of track and trace, absolutely vital and has been shown to be a lifesaver in so many countries, was dropped. Uh, What what about the lockdown measures more broadly? Do you think that we are at the right stage now? Do we need to be thinking about taking another step further or are things sitting pretty? Well, I've been really calling for evidence because this is such a serious virus and we're hearing still of hundreds of people dying every day. And we can't just plow ahead. Of course, all of us are frustrated. We want life to resume as it was before in so many ways. But um, that's just not going to be possible. And therefore, we do need to be incredibly patient, but also to be led by hard evidence. And I've been asking a lot of questions. That's what I tend to to do, scrutinise the government over its 
um, position, so for the policies it's pursuing. And what I'm finding is that crucial questions are just not being asked at this time. And of course, that will have a real, a really profound impact on the way that we're moving forward. It's we must be safe. We must well, ensure. What that are those crucial questions? Spike. What are those um, crucial questions, so, Rachel, that you're talking about? So I've been asking questions, for instance, where infection takes place. So um, we know that, um, for instance, mortality um, figures are reported on in care homes and in hospital. But, for instance, how many people end up in hospital who are infected in care homes? That's more important because when you know the source of infection, that's when you take the measures to prevent it. Um, sadly, mortality is too late to be able to respond to in that sense. So... Um, Data is important, a proper risk analysis, and I've asked the government for this as well, so that we can really understand the risk that we're trying to mitigate, whether that's an economic risk or a health risk. And again, the evidence isn't there. And we're certainly finding this over this question of whether or not schools return on the 1st of June and um, the risk that that is going to propagate within our community, where people are living in multi-generational households, where people are living around vulnerability, of course it is going to increase risk. And what we don't want to see is an increase of infection, more people ending up poorly and in hospital, and more people dying. So what would be your sense around schools then? June the 1st, should we go back or are we holding off? Well, um, my sense, and I've spoken at length um, with teachers, with parents in my own constituency, and beyond, and um, the the sense is that if it's if, if schools aren't ready, if schools cannot provide that safe, secure environment, then we must hold off. And in particular, asking the little ones who they really cannot socially distance when when you're um, one you won't understand when you're so little, but also um, it's your natural instinct. I've, I've described it as. Um, acting like magnets to one another. Children of a very early age um, that are being asked to return into school, they will not be able to socially distance and therefore they're putting them, themselves, their families at risk and there's a lot of concern. I just think we've got to get this right. Uh, we can't but, but, take risks. But Rachel, I mean, part of the problem in this is who decides that moment because the government, to some extent, the education authorities did want to resume. The teachers' unions weren't happy. Initially, the BMA weren't happy. I don't know, and they changed their mind. So in the end, who has to give it the, the go-ahead? Well, you have to carry out a proper risk assessment, and, and um, that is nothing new. And from a risk assessment, you understand what the risks are you're trying to mitigate. And then you can put in place the right measures to ensure that that risk is dissipated where possible or minimised. That fundamental work should be undertaken first. And in so many cases, it hasn't been. And that's why we're in this situation now where people are uncertain, but also people are incredibly worried, including parents. Are we being harsh enough on the people who aren't complying, who aren't being team players here? I noticed the photos, which I'm sure you'll have seen from the newspapers this morning, people flocking to the beaches and it feels like that's only going to get worse as the weather gets better. I see Wales increasing its maximum penalties for breaching lockdown to £1,920. Does does England and the other uh, home nations need to take note of that and follow suit? Everyone should be able to go out into the environment and, and socially distance and get that exercise and fresh air. And it's a natural instinct to want to do that. Uh, however, uh, we've got to keep these places safe. And therefore, again, a risk assessment highlights the challenges that there are in particular location and what 
steps should be put in place to protect them. So um, we've got to just take one step at a time in this. And um, what I would say to people who obviously want to enjoy this wonderful sunny weather is um, be mindful of others. This isn't just about you. This is about the whole of our communities. And we want everyone to be safe at the end of this. But but what if they don't? Do we have to be stricter with them? Well, the legislation at the moment in England, and I've talked to our local police about this, is um, there's very little um, the police can do to enforce. Now, in Wales, they introduced legislation, and I think this was um, very wise to do so, on social distancing. It's been particularly helpful in looking at workplaces so that proper measures are put in place in the work environment so that employers have to ensure social distancing. It's a recommendation here that there's... Often a lot is driven by guidance as opposed to legislation. Many people are concerned about the position of charities in this, Rachel. I know you're uh, working or, or concerned about the voluntary sector. It's part of your brief. Are you concerned that charities, as we've been hearing from pro bono economics this morning on Bloomberg Radio, are under so much pressure that some of the major ones could even collapse? Well, charities themselves have not got the resources they need. They've been obviously constricted on their fundraising activities, and that now's the kind of the time of year when many of those activities take place. And it's estimated that, that for the sector itself, that um, over a 12-week period, the the scale 4.3 billion pounds would have been lost to the sector, and yet the government's only. Um, made provision for 750 million um, and a lot of that is for new additional capacity as a result of the coronavirus outbreak. So the charity sector is deeply concerned. I've got a meeting with the Charity Commissioner later today to talk about many of these concerns because it will not survive without the right support being put in place. Charities are providing a really important frontline uh, response, not only to coronavirus, but that wider support within our communities, helping people who are isolated and lonely, helping people who are challenged by their new economic circumstances, poverty on food provision. It's so important that we don't see these organisations, the infrastructure that's holding our communities together, the, the real glue there, which so many people participate in, donate to. We don't want to see these organisations go. So government really must step up and provide the resources these organisations need. And what about for-profit businesses? I was interested to see that the British Chambers of Commerce this week found that one in 10 couldn't restart now if they had to. And a lot of that is because of social distancing. There are just some businesses that aren't going to be able to exist in the new post-coronavirus economy. Is it right that the taxpayer is funding them now? Well, this is again why we need a risk analysis, because we need to understand where are the risks in our economy. I mean, we're not just talking about recession here, and I think we all understand that, that this is an economic shock that none of us have experienced in our lifetimes. And therefore, we absolutely need to make sure that we're making smart investment, that the money which has been put aside is able to do the job that it's purpose to do. And I fear that in, in some cases, we may not have the right money going into the right places. And of course, if we're going to rebuild our economy, what we want to make sure is that it's more equitable than the economy we've just left behind. And to ensure that, we need to make sure the right stimulus uh, are going into the right places. And my concern is that that could well 
not be happening because the basic analysis again has not been undertaken. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And Roger, we start once again with Brexit. Yes, it's becoming a bit of a theme that we've forgotten. And of course, we haven't, and it's still there. And, well, this week it came back with a bit of a bite because tensions have been boiling over amid a growing spat between Britain's chief negotiator, David Frost, and his Brussels counterpart, Michel Barnier. And it also serves to underline how little the two really have achieved over the last few weeks. Next month's summit now looks, well, rather likely to expose key divisions that still exist between the two sides. No real signs of any common ground at this point. Uh, yeah, same old rhetoric from those two. Then on the virus front, Scotland outlining its first, uh, its four-phase plan later for moving out of lockdown. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon says restrictions could start to be eased in a week. Interesting from a country that so far has been quite hesitant to do that. Her deputy John Swinney says the guidance clears up what people should do in a number of different areas of life. Whether that's about business, about uh, schools, about healthcare about how families can meet up, all these different considerations, which I know have been a strain for members of the public over the last eight weeks. Well, that's John Swinney there. Now, do you remember President Trump saying he was going to take hydroxychloroquine? The fact that he is taking it. Well, a trial is now going on to see whether two anti-malarial drugs, including that one, could prevent COVID-19. It's begun in Brighton and in Oxford. Chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, or a placebo will be given to more than 40,000 healthcare workers. So I guess we'll find out. I'll take the sugary white pill, please, of the three. And then we've got scooters. The government fast-tracking changes to transport laws to allow electric scooters in London, which, as some will know, are currently illegal. It comes as commuters return to their offices while still needing to adhere to social distancing rules. So we're all going out and buying bikes and learning to walk and all the rest of it. Previously, some small-scale trials in four UK cities not including London, had been planned for 2021. But this week, the government told companies like Bird, Lime, Tear and Voy Technology that it was considering making scooters legal as part of a nationwide trial. I seem to remember they always thought they were quite dangerous and people get collided into it. They look terrifying. Hmm. Well, I suppose the virus is even more terrifying. And now AstraZeneca has received more than a billion dollars in funding from the US to develop a vaccine and they're going to do it in coordination with the University of Oxford. The UK drug makers agreed to supply 400 million doses and capacity to make over a billion. The Oxford vaccine is one of the world's fastest moving, and AstraZeneca says it expects to start supplying doses in September, so not long. Joining us now for more on this story is John Lauman, editor for the health team at Bloomberg. John, welcome to the programme. Um, first of all, this this development with AstraZeneca, now we, we've heard a lot of different companies. We heard Moderna pursuing uh, a vaccine. There's a lot going on in this, but is AstraZeneca really now out in front? Hi, yeah, good morning. Well, I guess you could say they're out in front. No one else has said that they will deliver doses uh, before September. Um, that includes Moderna. Astra has been very aggressive with their, I'm sorry, um, the Oxford has been very aggressive 
with their predictions of how soon this can be developed. And Astra has gone right along with them in saying that the doses could be ready as, as soon as September. Does this push the U.S. to the front of the line here? Because the AstraZeneca had previously said the U.K. would be the first to get hold of a vaccine. But if the U.S. is pumping a billion dollars into this, presumably they're going to want to see something in return. Well, interestingly, um, although uh, Astra is still saying that the vaccine, the doses could be uh, available as early as September, the uh, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services said that they are not expecting their doses until October. So it does still look like uh, the U.K. could be first. However, Astra is uh, uh, emphasizing in all of their statements that their their supply plans are going on in parallel. So this may have something to do with where the vaccine is actually made, when the um, uh, vaccine lines for those particular countries uh, get started. Um, It still remains to be seen. But um, uh, as I say, they're talking about vaccine doses in September for the UK. I mean, I suppose what a lot of people might look at this and think, John, is that there's a bit of nationalism in this. It's, you know, who gets it first? Who's in the queue? Who's got enough money to put it out there? It doesn't seem like quite the right way to produce a vaccine. Yes and no, I suppose. I mean, there are many countries all over the world that are making vaccine or countries where vaccine is being made. And it's not unreasonable, I guess, in my mind anyway, to think that if you are going to make a vaccine you, you know, in your own country, that there should be, you, you should get some kind of priority if you're successful first. Um, remember, uh, anything can happen. There's no reason to think, for example, that the Oxford vaccine um, might not be successful and that a, a, a vaccine in China or the U.S., um, might emerge, you know, the Moderna vaccine, for example, uh, might uh, surge ahead of it. So, um, you know, it, w- it would be great if all these vaccines could be instantly available all over the world for everyone. But that's just not how it works. Uh, you need to do a lot of, you know, planning and manufacturing and, and distribution. And uh, when you're making a vaccine in a particular country, the easiest place to distribute it is going to be in the uh, area, the region right around you. And obviously, there's huge political impetus uh, for countries you know, like the U.S., like the U.K., like China, to claim these vaccines for their own, um, make them available to their own citizens first, not just because it looks good to citizens, but also because it gets economies moving again. Um, in advance of other countries. Mm, that makes sense. Uh, what about antibody testing? Because we've seen the UK uh, offering those and announcing today they're going to roll those out to NHS and social care staff. Uh, Boris Johnson has called it a potential game changer. But then, of course, we don't know if antibodies, if having had the virus, actually makes you immune. How optimistic are you about this sort of approach? Well, there actually are some studies out now indicating that the antibodies do make you immune. Um, there are a lot of reasons, though, I think, that we should still be cautious about, uh, you probably heard the term, immunity passports, right? Uh, in other words, if somebody shows that they have antibodies, that they have some immunity, they're able to go back to work as a result. And um, I think until we know for sure that these antibody tests work, that uh, not so much of the antibodies work, it, it seems pretty clear that the antibodies are effective or that somebody who's had 
the virus before and has made antibodies is going to be immune. But until we're sure that these antibody tests are actually accurate to tell somebody, okay, you have immunity, you can't get the virus, uh, and then put them in the position where they might get it or they might get it spread it to somebody else, um, th- those, I say, are, are uh, perilous decisions to make. Yeah. John, just bring us up to speed, actually, on on the latest knowledge that we're getting. Because I mean, I, from my reading, we're seeing we we seem to know more and more, but there's still an awful lot of questions out there. What are the kind of things we know, for example, about how the disease works and the kind of medical issues it brings about? Yeah, that's been really interesting. My colleague Jason Gale has written on this topic uh, quite a bit, um, and I think I think uh, what we're seeing right now is. And I think this has a lot to do with with immunity and the fact that you know most people, really all people who get infected uh, with um, SARS-CoV-2 with the coronavirus, that their tissues just don't aren't able to demonstrate a lot of immunity. So you 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 get all you, you get reactions in a lot of different organs. You get um, you know the virus invading lots of different tissues, and then. You also get <clears throat> this uh, reaction where an, an, an inflammatory type reaction, which is uh, part of the body's uh, immune response. But sometimes this inflammatory reaction can kind of go, like, go over the top. And as a result, what we're seeing in, in a lot more people is issues with clotting. And clotting is one of the things, excess clotting is one of the things that your body does often to protect you uh, if you're in danger, if you're in a, in a fight or something like that. If you're losing blood, your body wants to clot blood. And uh, sometimes that uh, reaction goes too far. And as a result, um, we're seeing lots of people uh, who have COVID, who have um, uh, damage uh, in their internal organs, um, uh, you know, that could be heart, lungs, et cetera, from clot. So that's one of the, I'd say, one of the big things that's really emerged as a complication of COVID is issues with clotting. And there are others um, that we've seen for a while, loss of smell, um, loss of taste, uh, um, infections in the uh, eye. Um, it's, it's really uh, because, I think, in part because we just have so little immunity to this particular virus, the, uh, the effects can be quite far-reaching. So bringing it back to Britain, how important then is a track and trace system? We know the government is looking to bring it into place. Is this going to be the thing that allows us finally to get a handle on this virus in Britain? Well, it's worked for a lot of other countries. It's worked extremely well in, in Germany. And of course, you know the, the story in South Korea, um, Australia, New Zealand, also some very uh, aggressive tracking and tracing programs. So... If the if the tracking and tracing is is done well, um, if the tests are accurate and the 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 tests for act, uh, for active virus uh, that actually find the DNA of the active virus in your system are actually pretty good, um, and uh, uh, if if you're able to uh, 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 test and, and track and trace those people and and isolate people effectively who uh, may have been exposed or have been exposed. Then yes. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. 
This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.